John chapter 5, 1 to 18, part 2 of Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath and equal with God. Lord of the Sabbath and equal with God. John 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him, who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us this word. We know it's true, and we pray that you will sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ, amen. Just to have a brief recap of what happened in this passage. We explained last time, but in this part two, we'll explain briefly what has happened so far. But our focus, our attention will be on verses 14 to 18. 14 to 18 to learn a few more lessons that we were not able to explore last time. Here we have a man... At a feast time, so there will be a lot of people there in Jerusalem. At a feast time, a man who was lame for 38 years. He was not able to go into the miraculous water because he didn't have anybody who cared enough for him to be near him all the time in order to put him in the water whenever the angel of the Lord stirred up the water. However, Christ encounters him 
And Christ asked him if he wants to get well, and of course his answer would be yes. And he says in verse 7, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Well, Christ is greater than the angel, and he doesn't have to wait for the angel. Christ, with a word, he heals this lame man. He heals him in verse 8. Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. He spoke the word, and then it happened. Because he is God in human flesh, he has miraculous power, and he is able to do whatever he wills in heaven and on earth. And so he healed him. The problem, though, is with the crowds of people, and especially with the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities of the time, they looked for ways to blame Christ. And one of their ways was to show the people, or at least to assert to the people, the charge against Christ that he broke the Sabbath. And that's why John the Apostle tells us in verse 9, that it was the Sabbath day. He healed this man on the Sabbath day as though it was wrong to heal a man on the Sabbath day, as though it's wrong to do good on the Sabbath day, as though it's wrong to show mercy to someone else on the Sabbath day. They completely misunderstood Moses and God's intention about the Sabbath day. They completely misunderstood that and added their own man-made traditions, man-made rules and regulations about how one should conduct himself, live his life on the Sabbath day. They invented pretexts in order to heap more rules and regulations on the people and to assert that they had the way of righteousness and truth. Well, they used this to attack Christ. They attack Christ for this reason, and that's what we pick up at verses 16 to 18. They attack Christ related to the Sabbath day. Now, before we explore that some more, let's pick it up at verse 14, where Christ, he encounters this man again because they saw each other in the temple, because it says in 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Let's explore what he means by this statement. You have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Firstly, this is an indication that Christ is teaching repentance. This is an indication that Christ is teaching this man repentance. It's noteworthy to say that repentance is found in this book of John. It's noteworthy, or it's important to do so, because there are some interpreters of the Bible, false interpreters of the Bible, who claim that the book of John does not teach repentance So repentance or turning away from sin is not for Christians to preach. Christians should not preach repentance because the book of John is an example that we only should preach that people should have faith, only preach that people should believe to have eternal life, but not preach repentance. Yes, 
some interpreters, and even some tracts are published on the basis of that ideology, on the basis of, of that false understanding of the book of John, and even of the New Testament. They justify it on that basis. However, Jesus teaches, do not sin anymore. So he is teaching, in another way, repentance. Now, before we go to some examples in the book of John of repentance, even though the word isn't used, the concept is there. We'll see that. Another thing that I would like to point out is this book of John doesn't use the word gospel either. It doesn't use the the word gospel or good news either. Now, if the word gospel or good news is not used here in the book of John, even though the concept is there, then are we going to say that John does not preach the gospel? The book of John does not preach the gospel? No, we're not going to say that. So just because a certain word isn't used in a particular part of the Bible does not necessarily mean that the teaching, the doctrine, the belief, the concept is not there. The concept could very well be there. Then, does he teach... In this book of John, does he teach repentance? Look at John 3, 19. John 3, 19. John 3, 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In 19 to 21, he obviously is teaching the need for repentance. In other words, he's saying that people or men who love darkness rather than light don't come to the light of Christ because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light. They hate the light of Christ. They won't come because they don't want their own evil deeds, meaning even their evil thoughts, their evil values, their evil actions. They don't want their evil exposed because they don't want to reject them once they are exposed. Here he clearly is saying we must have our evil deeds exposed and then rejected. Obviously, which is another way of describing repentance. Furthermore, we have John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus has been preaching to those who were fed, to those who were fed of the loaves and fish, the great crowds of people. He's teaching them, at least some of them, in John chapter 6. And verse 60, we pick it up. They don't like what he's saying. Verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Who can bear listening to the things Jesus is teaching? That's their point. Who can bear? Who can tolerate? Who can put up with what Jesus is saying? It's hard for our ears, hard for our mind, hard for our hearts hard for our life to understand what he's saying or understand to the point of obeying it, believing it, and doing it. We can't put up with it. We can't tolerate it. They say, who can do that? 
It's amazing that anybody could. And Jesus challenges them further, and then they don't listen. Verse 66. Verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, they withdrew and weren't walking with him, weren't following him anymore. They are called disciples because this is an example of false discipleship. Now, if Jesus were teaching, God loves you. God will always provide good things for you. He'll always give you health and wealth. God is always kind. God will not send you to hell. God does not expect you to turn away from sin. If you believe things that are false, God does not expect you to give them up. If Jesus were teaching things like this, these in this chapter, they would not have had the reaction of verse 60 and verse 66. Verses 60 and 66. They would never have said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? And they never would have withdrawn. But because Jesus taught them tough things, things they didn't like to hear, which included turning away or repenting of their false beliefs, they would have stayed with him. But he did preach those things, and that's why they walked away. There are many examples like this in the book of John. So Jesus definitely taught repentance and expected repentance here in the book of John. And if Jesus did, then we should too. However we want to describe it, as long as we describe it the way the Bible describes it, whether we use the word repentance, turn away from sin, give up your past life, embrace Christ, follow Christ, take up your cross daily, however we might explain it, the Bible teaches repentance. And Jesus taught this man repentance because he had not heard about it in the true sense before. Further, further we have in the statement do not sin anymore. Do not sin anymore. We have Jesus teaching us progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification or gradual holiness. He has here in this word the teaching of progressive or gradual holiness or sanctification. Not that at the time of our conversion we are automatically 100% perfect. Or at any point after our conversion, we do not become 100% perfect. The teaching or doctrine of perfectionism, sinless perfection, is not found in the Holy Bible. It's not found here. It is, in fact, taught by many denominations, but it is not true. We will never become perfect here. We should strive for it, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. We ought to strive for it. We ought to strive for conformity to Christ and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, Romans 12, 2 or Romans 12, 1 and 2, teaches that we must be conformed to Christ or conformed to God. And that is good, acceptable, and perfect. We must be so. So we must strive for it, as it says in 
other places of Scripture. We ought to strive for it. But in the meantime, we won't be perfect, though we are gradually or progressively improving, growing in our faith, growing in our obedience. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, well, why would they need to increase if you have them to perfection? They are increasing because we don't have these qualities to perfection. But we do increase. We do progress. We do gradually grow. That's what he means here. We must increase. And when we do so, we are neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is necessary. We must strive for perfection, but we understand we will not arrive at perfection in this life. We will in the life to come, but that is not a guarantee for anyone in this life. Furthermore, we spoke of the need to strive, the need to press on, the need to wage war, the need to persevere, the need to endure. This is also what he means when he says, sin no more. Sin, do not sin anymore. He means that it must be a constant struggle in our life. It must be something we pursue diligently. We must pursue it in a very, very uh, diligent or eager way. Pursue our fight against sin. 1 Corinthians 9.27 1 Corinthians 9.27 I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest after I have preached to others, I possibly might be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says he buffets his body and makes it his slave. To buffet the body. Earlier in the chapter, he spoke of the athlete. We might think of the athlete or of the soldier. The athlete or the soldier. Both of these in their professions, they must buffet their body. Now, when he says buffet the body, he does not mean torture the body. He does not mean abuse the body, but he does mean self-discipline. He does mean self-control to buffet the body. The athlete 
the professional athlete, and even the soldier, they both must have a regimen. They both must have uh, a rigorous schedule. They must have rigorous discipline to control who they are, and they do so for what reason? The athlete does it for a prize. The soldier does it for his nation. Now, these are noble. It's noble to compete, and it's noble to win a prize. And it's even more noble for a soldier to enlist himself in order to defend his nation. But what is more noble than those two? The Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is to reach heaven, to strive for heaven, to strive to enter by the narrow gate. Luke 13, 23. To strive to enter by the narrow gate. Luke 13, 23. That is more noble, and that's why the Apostle Paul says that he buffets his body and makes his body his slave so that it is under control. All that he thinks, all that he speaks, all that he does with his hands, his feet, his mouth, whatever parts of his body, he seeks to bring those parts under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 puts forward the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, 1 to 11. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your, in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There, we have joy that is ahead in the future. Just as Christ had joy set before him in the future, so it is with us. But meantime, 
we must endure. Meantime, there must be striving against sin. Meantime, there must be discipline. Meantime, we must not let sin encumber us. It cannot be a load and a burden to us. We must shake it off. We must shake off the sin that's in our life. That's what Christ meant when he told the healed man, do not sin anymore. And one more thing to note, one more implication when he said, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. So that nothing worse may befall you. What is the something worse that could have encountered the man? What is something worse that might have encountered him? We might think it was something physical, and that could well be. He was healed of lameness, but then instantly God could have put him to death, like he did to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Maybe Jesus meant that. He probably meant to include something like that, but I think he had something greater in mind. I think what he had in mind was, if we do not repent of sin, if we do not pursue progressive sanctification, if we do not fight against sin, then what is it that is worse that will befall us? What is it that is worse that might happen to us? And that worst thing is the day of judgment or condemnation, punishment on the day of judgment. Of judgment. On the day of judgment, we will be exposed as being frauds. We will be exposed as being false converts, false disciples, pretenders, imposters on the day of judgment. That is what might be exposed. And why do we say so? Our first example is Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse 12, Luke 10, 12 to 14, or 12 to 15. Luke 10, 12 to 15. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. He tells these cities, the three cities where he performed his miracles and ministry, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He warns them that they, because they're not repenting, that on the day of judgment, though Sodom and Gomorrah, though Tyre and Sidon will be judged on that day, the judgment that they receive will be worse because maybe temporarily and superficially they turn away and they fall they turn away from sin and follow Christ, as the crowds did from place to place. They did so. But when they don't truly repent of sin on the day of judgment, their outcome or their condemnation will be worse than Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon. It will be worse for them on the day of judgment. Something worse. 
is, is exemplified here. Another place that something worse is exemplified is Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, 26 to 31. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In 26, he says, if we go on sinning willfully. That sounds like John 5, 14. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Something worse. Well, what is something worse? Well, notice in verse 29, how much severer punishment, a severer punishment is something worse, right? In this case, the severe punishment is after you have come to know the gospel, after you have come to understand the true gospel of Christ, if you walk away from it by sinning willfully, if you sin contrary to the true gospel of Christ, willfully and persistently, when you do so, there should be in you a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. In the law of Moses, if one turned away from the law of Moses and worshipped idols, what was the worst penalty that Moses could inflict on the idolater? It would have been the death penalty. What was the worst penalty Moses could have inflicted on the adulterer? It would have been the death penalty. That was the worst penalty Moses could inflict. But in the case of Christ, what is a severe punishment? Because they mistreat the blood of Christ, because they mistreat the spirit of grace. What is the worst, worst penalty or the Severer penalty here. It is punishment by the fury of God on the day of judge, judgment because his vengeance will be inflicted on the unrepentant sinner and he will judge the unrepentant sinner and he will terrify them because of his mighty power on that day of judgment and their outcome, their destiny will be hell. That is the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. So, when Christ said, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you, he is speaking of the reality, the truthfulness, the factuality that there is a day of judgment and that day of judgment is worse 
if you do not begin to turn away from sin. The next point, the next point we make is based on verses 16 to 18. On verses 16 to 18, first we have what the Jews were thinking and what Jesus responds in their thinking. And then we have John's explanation in verse 18. What the Jews, the persecuting Jews, were thinking, verse 16. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. On the one hand, they despise Christ, they persecute Christ, and in verse 18 we learn they want to kill Christ. They want to kill him for breaking the Sabbath in verse 16. So that's the first reason they wanted to persecute Christ to death. The second reason they wanted to persecute Christ to death has to do with verse 17, when Jesus answers them. When Jesus answers them or anticipates them, he justifies his actions by explaining himself in verse 17. And then when he does explain himself, he claims deity for himself. He claims the divine nature for himself. He claims equality with God for himself. When he does so, that is a double reason. Now, two reasons that why they want to kill Christ, to persecute Jesus Christ to death. He says in 17, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. When he says, My father... The Jews correctly understood that Jesus was claiming to have a unique relationship to his heavenly Father. A relationship that the average person does not have. The average man does not have. The average believer does not have. He was claiming to have a divine nature, to be deity in human flesh. Just as John says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So they understood when he said, my father, he meant my own father. He's not your father. He's not anybody else's father. He is only my father. He's claiming deity, which is what John the Apostle explains in verse 18. But also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. These are the two reasons they wanted to persecute Christ to death. Now, a word of explanation and clarification. In terms of the Sabbath day and breaking the Sabbath, verse 18 says, And for this cause or reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath. What does it mean that he was breaking the Sabbath? Breaking the Sabbath. Firstly, let's understand from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. That breaking the Sabbath is what John says is happening here. But Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath in terms of sinning against God. He was not breaking the Sabbath in terms of sinning against God. Matthew chapter 12. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 5. Jesus speaks. This is another Sabbath controversy. Matthew 12, 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? In the law, they break the Sabbath and are innocent? He means by this that there were certain laws in the law of Moses, such as in the book of Deuteronomy, such as, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 28. In the book of Numbers chapter 28, they had to perform certain rituals and rites on the Sabbath day. Even in Leviticus chapter 12, they were to circumcise their male offspring on the eighth day. And sometimes the eighth day would be the Sabbath day. So the priests were supposed to circumcise the male children on the eighth day. Leviticus chapter 12. So two examples of how the priests were supposed to conduct certain rituals on the Sabbath day. And yet, they were not breaking the Sabbath day in a literal sense. It says in Matthew 12, 5, On the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. So it's breaking the Sabbath in this sense. Normally, we're not supposed to do this or that on the Sabbath day. But if God says that you should do something on the Sabbath day, what is normally not done, if it is done because God says so, God ordains it, then in, a, in the sense of what is normal and then what is exceptional, in that sense you're breaking it, but you're not breaking it as though you are guilty of sin. You are innocent. Do you understand? This is what Jesus meant. Or, and this is also what John the Apostle meant. They break the Sabbath in the normal way, They're not practicing it in the normal way, but they are actually innocent because God made room for exceptions. He made room for exceptions. Another place to look is John 7. John chapter 7 and verse 23. John 7, 23. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? John 7, 23, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Now he's using that phrase in the other way. He's saying, We're supposed to obey the law of Moses to circumcise a male on the eighth day in order to avoid breaking the law of Moses. And you understand that, that that is an exception. Then why are you upset at me that I healed a man, made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? Furthermore, Luke chapter 13 Luke chapter 13. Luke 13 and verse 15. 13, 15. 13, 15. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, 
Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? He says here, he calls him a hypocrite because what do they do? They untie ox and donkey, lead them to the, uh, from the stall to the water in order to water them on the Sabbath day, right? And Moses made provision for that. They practiced it. They're not breaking the law of the Sabbath on that day. And then you have the audacity. This is an animal that needs water, and you do well to give the animal water. And you have the audacity, the pride, the arrogance to say that this woman, she was 18 years, long years in her illness, and I chose to heal her on the Sabbath. And you have the audacity to confront me? Don't you know that a human, a woman, a sick woman for 18 years is more valuable than your oxen? Don't you know that? And you think it's okay for the oxen, but not okay for the woman? He's calling them hypocrites. Shame on them. Chapter 14, Luke 14. 14. Jesus does this in one of his enemy's houses. He does it in the house of his enemy. Luke 14, verse 1. And it came about when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread that they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you shall have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. No reply. They kept quiet twice in verse 4 and in verse 6 because Jesus with his arguments was able to silence them. So they would have been ashamed to say anything because they did not want to be refuted again and again and again. And why? Because they know full well that if their son or their ox had fallen into a well, there would have been no questions asked. They would have rounded up whatever number of people, whatever number of equipment in order to deliver their son or ox from a well on the Sabbath day. And they knew that their Sabbath laws, Mosaic and otherwise, made exceptions for that. And this is why when Jesus is confronted, that it is on an illegitimate basis. They are not understanding any of these things correctly. Now, what is here in Scripture may be summarized by a catechism question. In the Baptist Catechism, the version I read is question 65, and it says the following. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? 
The Sabbath, the answer, the Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days. And spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. There we have it. And then they have several scriptural proofs to prove what they just summarized. That is, what we might normally do on other days, it is right and good on the Sabbath to set them aside so that we might spend the whole day in public and private worship of God. Except the works or the deeds, the actions of necessity and mercy, which is illustrated from our examples in Luke 13, Luke 14, John chapter 5, so forth, and John chapter 7. These examples are plenty throughout Scripture. If there's something that is necessary to do, then fine, you're not breaking the Sabbath in terms of breaking it and and a sin against God. You are innocent. Or if there's a work of mercy, you have to show somebody mercy when there's an urgency, when there is an emergency on the Sabbath day, then handle it. Don't sweat it, just do it and save a life on that day. So works of necessity and mercy are permitted. And that's the scriptural evidence that we have. Why is it that we must clarify this? Why is it that we must take pains for this? On the one hand, we have people within Christianity um, profaning and making the Sabbath day a common day. They just consider it just any other day, which we, I believe we have sufficiently covered that this time and last time, we should use the whole day for the public and private worship of God. That should be our focus. That's what it means to rest. Rest from our regular work and rest in Christ or worship Christ. That's what we should be doing on the Sabbath day, with the exceptions of necessity and mercy. That's a problem on the one hand, because remember, today, and if you just look at your own experience and see what others do, people consider regular worship to be going to church for an hour on Sunday morning twice a month to be regular worship, regular Christian. And they even boast that they go to church twice a year at Christmas and Easter, when that is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches the opposite. It teaches us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. However, there is also another false teaching that militates against what we have just heard. And that is that... One claims, or teachers claim, based on even this verse, John 5, 18. It says by John the Apostle that Jesus broke the Sabbath. So Jesus broke the Sabbath. Therefore, we can and ought to break the Sabbath. Jesus broke the Sabbath. Therefore, we are in a position to break Sabbath. The Sabbath. They use wrong examples, misinterpretations of Scripture to justify their own behavior, to justify their own sin. 
And typically what happens is that people first attack the Sabbath commandment in order to make all of the Ten Commandments crumble and fall. And then to ditch all of the Ten Commandments and not study them, not expect them, not preach and teach them, and not show unbelievers the Ten Commandments, let alone the believers. Right? They get rid of all of the Ten Commandments in this way. It's usually the first commandment to go. This is done by false teachers because they are justifying sin by first denying the Sabbath commandment and saying, well, Jesus broke the Sabbath commandment, therefore we should too. And they also do logically take it to its conclusion that if the Sabbath commandment is inapplicable today, then all the rest of them are also inapplicable. The vast majority of them take it to its logical conclusion to reject all Ten Commandments. They do so. Now, I said they do this to soften sin. If Jesus broke the Sabbath commandment, then we can break the Sabbath commandment. We don't need to obey it. Right? That's what they say. So if Jesus is the example, Jesus becomes the example to them, usually and only when Jesus does something that justifies their sin. But when Jesus does something that doesn't justify their sin, they ignore those passages. They ignore those words. They ignore those teachings of Christ whenever Jesus does not justify their behavior. For example, Jesus broke the Sabbath, therefore we can break the Sabbath. Another example, Jesus did not preach against homosexuality, therefore we should not preach against homosexuality. Jesus didn't preach against it, therefore we didn't. Jesus preached love, Jesus preached God as Father. Jesus preached, um, does no one condemn you? Nor do I. They preached things like that. That if Jesus says love, if Jesus preaches that nobody condemned you so I don't condemn you, what are they doing? They are teaching that it's okay to smother people with grace and love and mercy and compassion in the way that they understand those words. Love, mercy, grace, compassion, in the way that they comprehend, they misunderstand the Bible, and they do so to justify sin, their own sin and the sin of others. For example, if we just read the rest of the verse or the rest of the sentence, in John eight eleven. When Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, John 8, 11, and she said, No one, Lord, and Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. They leave it there. But notice it says in verse 11, and uh, it says, From now on, sin no more. He says the same as in John five fourteen, Sin no more to her. But they say, oh, he's, he, Jesus does not preach condemnation. He doesn't preach condemnation. He preaches love, mercy, and grace all the time without any condemnation. Well, the Jesus that they worship is a false Jesus. 
The Jesus that they follow is not the Jesus of the Bible. So we can't use Jesus as an excuse for sin. And one more example. We hear often that Jesus, he kept company with sinners. Jesus sat with sinners. And it is true, Jesus sat with sinners. But tell me, did Jesus sit with unrepentant sinners while they are committing their sins in his presence and he says nothing to them? No, there is not a single example of it. Jesus sat with sinners, either who were repentant sinners or sinners that he was intending to confront for their sin. On those two bases, he sat with sinners. He either sat with repentant sinners or he sat with sinners that he intended to confront because of their sin. If we read those contexts clearly, that's why Jesus sat with sinners. He did not sit with sinners so that they could sin in front of him. Do you think Jesus would have sat at uh, a drunken bar while the men and the women are drinking themselves to drunkenness and he's sitting there just shooting the breeze with them? No, he would never have done that. In fact, he would have confronted it. He would have walked out in disgust. After confronting them, he would have walked out. Because how is it possible to reason with a drunkard? Would Jesus have gone to a brothel, a house of prostitutes? While he's watching men come in and out, and he's watching the women do what they do for these men, being paid to do so by those men. Do you think Jesus would have just sat there with the prostitutes? Would he have done that without confronting them? No. He would have been with repentant, prost- repentant prostitutes like Rahab the harlot. He would have done that, but he would not have been there while they are sinning. In fact, he would have confronted them. He would have said, shame on you, you hypocrites. Repent, turn from your sin. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would have done that in front of them. We could go on and on with these examples. Jesus never would have condoned sinners while they are sinning. He would never have done that. But that's what people do with Christ. They take these vague and false examples from the life of Christ, taking them out of context from Scripture to justify their wicked behavior, either their own wicked behavior or the wicked behavior of others. And sometimes it's both. But we cannot do that with Christ by misinterpreting the Scriptures. And I say this because it is so common, so common to use Jesus to justify our own sins. And when we do so, it's not just what we are doing to sin against God. We are actually blaspheming God. Why? Because if Jesus practiced what we practice, and if we are practicing sin in actuality, then we make Jesus a sinner. As some interpreters do based on John 5.18. Jesus broke the Sabbath, so Jesus sinned against the Sabbath commandment. Therefore, we can sin against the Sabbath commandment, and we can do all kinds of other things too. When we make Jesus a sinner then he's not 
the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not the one who has no blemish or any deceit in his mouth. He's not the one who was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. And we sin against God and blaspheme Christ by making Jesus a sinner. And he cannot be our Savior if he's a sinner. He has to be pure, unblemished, holy. Okay, and then lastly, we have this statement here in John 5, 18. Calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus made himself equal with God. Jesus was the Son of God in human flesh. Before his incarnation, before he came into the world, Jesus was in his divine nature. He was and is still. He is invisible. He is intangible. He is unphysical or non-physical. He does not have a material nature in his divine nature. He is spirit or invisible. The invisible God, uh, 1 Timothy 1.17. He is the invisible God. The God the Father is the invisible God. But even Christ was invisible as God until he became flesh. John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then he took upon a human nature and became visible. By the way, there is also a false teacher, uh, John Piper by name, who says that God and Christ, they broke the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make uh, an idol for yourselves, the second greatest commandment. That the Father and the Son broke that commandment by Christ coming into the world in human flesh. Based on verses like this. They broke that commandment. But he didn't break that commandment. There is no way he broke that commandment. So, if he is equal with God, the question arises, why is this important in John? Why is this crucial in John? Or why is this crucial in the Bible? Why does John the Apostle, or why does the Bible assert this? The Bible asserts it, I believe, for two reasons. It asserts it because if we don't believe in his divine nature then we cannot believe in his um, human nature with his combined nature in terms of seeing God here and now. If Jesus was just in a human nature here, then he was just like a prophet, any other prophet. A great prophet like John the Baptist, but merely a prophet. But if the Bible is claiming that he was historically a human person. And there is no one today, unless he is a complete fraud, unless he is a complete um, fool and moron, denies the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. No one can do that today. There is ample evidence in the Bible, ample evidence in Jewish history, and ample evidence in Roman history. No one can say Jesus was not a human. Jesus of Nazareth did not exist. No one can say that. Now, once they admit that, then the next question is, 
Did Jesus claim deity for himself? And the answer is yes, we will see so. Not only in this passage, but we'll see so. He did claim deity for himself. Then if he did claim deity for himself, what if someone says, if God were just to come in person, I would believe. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is that person who came in human flesh and still many, many and most people in his time did not believe. Most people who saw him did not believe. He had 500 brethren see him at one time after his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. In in Acts chapter 1, he had 120 disciples waiting for the day of Pentecost only 120, waiting for the day of Pentecost. But during his life, he had at least twenty to 30,000 people who witnessed what he did. At least. But they all weren't there. They all weren't waiting for him, only them. And yet, they did not believe God in human flesh. The other reason this is important has to do with the cross. If Jesus were only a man and died on the cross, whose sins could he pay for? Whose sins could he atone for? Whose sins? Only his own if he were perfect. This is all hypothetical. He could only pay for his own sins, but he could not pay for yours and mine because the soul who sins will die. We cannot pay for our own sins, right? And one man cannot pay for our own sins. It cannot happen that way. He would only be able to pay for his own. But then he didn't sin. So there would be no need for him to die. But he did die. So if he did die, for whom did he die? He died for you and me because being divine and human at the same time, his divine nature makes his death the person of Christ It makes his death of infinite value for you and me, for an infinite number of people. That's why it says, a great multitude in heaven which no one could count. Revelation 7, 9. Like the sand of the sea or the stars of heaven. Innumerable. For an innumerable number of sins. For an innumerable number of people. Because he was divine, and human. That's why we must believe in his deity. But someone might say, someone might say, well, the the Bible doesn't teach it. Well, the Bible does teach it. The New Testament certainly does. We saw John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We could we could also see John 20 28, when Thomas confessed to Christ, My Lord and my God. And he didn't say that by taking Christ's name or God's name in vain, he said that as a matter of faith. He expressed his faith because the next verse Jesus said, have you seen me and believed? He's expressing, Christ is expressing to Thomas, you have believed and I see that now. You have now believed my resurrection because you have said, my Lord and my God. He has called him Lord and God. We read earlier Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, 8 It is the Father speaking to the Son. It is the Father speaking to the Son in Hebrews 1.8. And God the Father calls His Son, Your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. Your throne, O God, the Father, God the Father calls His Son, O God. Hebrews 1.10, the Father calls the Son, Lord. Hebrews 1, verse 10. Lord, in the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth. God the Father says to the Son, Lord, in the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth. And then one more place, the Old Testament. Someone might say, well, the apostles, they invented the doctrine, but it's not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in the Old Testament. Well, Psalm 110, verse 1 Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Psalms are in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. David wrote this Psalm 1,000 years before the first coming of Christ. 1,000 years. This is not happenstance. This is not by chance. This was predicted and ordained by God. Now, if you notice, the Lord says to my Lord, well, who is the Lord speaking to David's Lord? There are two Lords mentioned there. And that is the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son. The Father says to the Son of God, who is also the Son of David, the Lord of David, Sit at my right hand. Now, is that far-fetched? No. Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 41. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Matthew 22, 41. It's at the very end of the chapter, the last paragraph. This is Christ referencing Psalm 110, verse 1. Matthew twenty two forty one. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then, how does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. What happens here? It's true when Jesus asked them, whose son is he? Whose son is the Christ? It is true, verse 42, the son of David. But it's only partially true. That part they were happy to and willing to recognize but they did not want to recognize the second part as applied to Christ, Jesus Christ. Verse 43, Then how does David in the Spirit, meaning in the Holy Spirit, so David isn't misspeaking, David isn't saying something false, David is not sinning. He's saying it in the Holy Spirit. David calls Christ, the son of David, Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And because of this dilemma, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? What did the Pharisees not want to admit? They did not want to admit the divine nature 
of Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't want to admit it. They did not want those words to come out of their mouth because they wanted to use that unbelief as a pretext for blasphemy. They wanted to accuse Christ of blasphemy and say, it's not true, you are not divine and human, the son of David, the Christ. You are not that. But, 46, because they had no answer, they didn't answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Meaning what? They knew Jesus' logic. They knew Jesus' knowledge of Scripture. They knew that Jesus' argumentation was superior to theirs and that he would refute them in front of the multitudes and they didn't want to be put to shame and then admit the truth. They did not want to be put to shame and admit the truth. That's why they kept quiet. Jesus indeed possesses a divine nature. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.